If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and we'll be in verses 30 through 37 for the next few minutes. As we go to God's Word, let's go to God in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you in worship, in adoration, in praise. And we look to you now, Father, to feed your people. Father, we are guided and sustained by your word and spirit, and so we pray that they would have their way with us now. Father, would you open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about you and also what duty you ask of your people. And as we do our duty, Father, may we do it in a humble reliance upon Christ. Father, may your word before us be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In June of this year, Kentucky lost a native son. He was born in 1942, grew up in Louisville, but his name, and in particular his new name, was known around the world. In fact, a few years ago, I was in Louisville for a conference and I went running, and I looked up at the street signs trying to get oriented to where I was, and I found myself running on Muhammad Ali Boulevard. The former American boxer, the three-time world champion, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated 40 times. Only Michael Jordan has been on the cover more often. He, though, unlike Jordan, was named the sportsman of the century, the sportsman of the 20th century. And some of you may know that even though he was born Cassius Clay, Junior, he became Muhammad Ali. He named himself that, and he also named himself this the greatest. Now, you might think, oh, that's what people say, or he said, hey, in 1975, he wrote his autobiography, and you know what the title of it was? The Greatest, My Own Story. Now, I really wouldn't have believed that this was true until one of my brothers told me of the time that he was in New York City in the, um, somewhere between 1972 and 76 with the Carolina basketball team. And he ended up on an elevator with none other than Muhammad Ali. And my brother tells me that he witnessed this conversation. There was a, a woman on the elevator and she said in a, a halting manner, stumbling over words, Mr. Ali, I, I think you're the greatest. And his response was this, you think I am the greatest, said outwardly in public. And yet, is that not what many of us, all of us, think inwardly and often, far too often, demonstrate it outwardly? Well, not only do we do that, but also the 12 hand-picked disciples, the first followers of Jesus, thought this and acted this way as well. We are in our series, 
Jesus according to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And Mark is helpfully divided into two halves. The first half is answering this question, who is Jesus? And the answer is, he is the Christ, as we see in Peter's confession toward the end of chapter 8. But the second half is what did Jesus come to do? He came to die as Jesus himself announces that mission at the end of chapter 8. Indeed, Mark is the shortest catechism that we have. It answers that question, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And in particular, the third question, how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? In chapter 8, 29, we have the confession of Peter. In chapter 8, verse 34, we have the call of Jesus. Our passage today is a commentary on Jesus' call to self-denial and cross-bearing. Now, his call was ratified by the divine words spoken at the transfiguration when the voice came from the heavens and told the disciples, Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Join with me now as I read Mark 9, verses 30 through 37. They, that would be Jesus and His disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee. And He did not want anyone to know, for He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they had kept, but they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I believe our text has three pictures in it. Two pictures of the disciples themselves and one picture of discipleship. Let's look first at a picture of the disciples. Who are they? They are men who are confused and afraid as we see in verses 30 through 32. Where are Jesus and his disciples? They are passing through Galilee. They're heading toward Jerusalem. Indeed, all of the second half of Mark heads toward Jerusalem. And here is the second of three times in Mark Jesus predicts his passion, his his death, his resurrection. You have a play in words where the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, once again announcing God's sovereign working through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
In these passion predictions, Jesus directs his teaching to an unswerving course and design. It is God's will for the Son of Man to suffer, to die, and to be raised. Among the many subjects that Jesus is teaching his disciples, this is one of supreme importance. And so certain is is this that many translations can even say is delivered. It's almost a done deal. It's going to happen. And yet the disciples are men who are confused, but they did not understand, we read. They were ignorant. The meaning escaped them. They didn't grasp the meaning of what Jesus was saying. It didn't fit their categories. It didn't register. Interestingly, this is the one use of the word understand in Mark. They did not understand. And yet notice it is used of those with the greatest access and opportunity to know Jesus at the time. His closest disciples. I think they are slow to understand since they are still imagining Jesus to only be about glory. His glory as the Messiah, the promised deliverer of Israel. Why is it so hard for them to understand? Well, could it be because they had formed a very different notion previously in their minds and hearts? J.C. Ryle in his commentary, the 19th, century English um, pastor and theologian bishop writes this in his commentary, never are we so slow to understand as when prejudice and preconceived opinions darken our eyes. The disciples themselves have prejudices. They have preconceived notions about who the promised Messiah would be. And that's why we are going to Mark to see Jesus according to the Bible. Because all of us bring in ideas and thoughts about who Jesus is, but we want to get them um, deconstructed and reconstructed based on the Scriptures. So let me ask you this. It's in, of course, you might be trying to share Jesus with others, and you might be thinking, wow, they, they have some odd ideas about who Jesus is. How about you? Do you have any ideas about Jesus that can't be supported by the Scriptures? And if so, where where do you get them? Where do you get them? We're going now to God's Word to get them. But not only are they confused, they are also men who are afraid. Now, why would they be afraid? Could it be that they don't even want to admit how confused they are? Um, is that the fear? Um, could it be that they were afraid that Jesus might really be serious and they might be preoccupied with their own anxiety? If Jesus says he's going to die and we've got to follow him, then maybe we're going to have to die. Mark's irony here is rich and heavy. When the word of God is finally spoken, the human response, even from these hand-picked followers is one of failure to understand and fear, fear of discussing it with him. How difficult we see it was for disciples to understand, to believe, and to follow. And my friends, may we 
demonstrate patience and compassion as we share Christ with others. We know it's only the working of the Holy Spirit that will open up someone's heart to the truth of Jesus. Be patient, be compassionate as you point people to Jesus. Here we see the difficulty, the stubbornness, the slowness, the dullness of the twelve. And we ask ourselves, is it difficult for us? Are we slow? Are we stubborn? Do we truly understand and believe and follow Jesus? They are confused and they are afraid. Again, great evidence that the scriptures are absolutely true. What kind of... What kind of religious um, organization would talk about the failures and the difficulties of its one-day leaders? Salvation is all of grace. We even see it's not by their works, but by the work of the Lord. Now, their degree of misunderstanding becomes further apparent in this following story because we see another picture of the disciples. What on earth are they doing? They are arguing over greatness. Arguing over greatness. Where are they? They're now back at the house in Capernaum. Possibly Peter's house, kind of a ministry home base. Their lack of understanding becomes evident when Jesus catches them playing a power game about who is the greatest. They still don't understand what it means to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Now here is a juxtaposition, and I love that word, but let me define it for all of us. Because I was in my 20s or 30s before I knew what that word was. Well, it's two things being seen or placed close together or side by side in order to compare and contrast. And here you have Jesus' humility. And the disciples desire for distinction and recognition side by side. In all three predictions of his passion, of his suffering and death, Jesus speaks of the necessity of rejection, suffering and death. And following all three, the disciples voice their ambitions for status, privilege and prestige. Do you see it? It's side by side. Jesus lowering himself and his followers elevating themselves. Greatness. The world gravitates toward greatness, right? I mean, you'd have to have your head in the sand recently. You hear talk about making this country great again. Everybody says that was a great movie. That was a great Championship. That was a great job opportunity. Great, great, great. It's all throughout the world. And to be sure, there is a, a healthy sense of what is great. But in the church, greatness in the church, human greatness and achievement in the church. Mark's description of the silence of the disciples is exactly the same as his account of the silence of the Pharisees at the healing of the man with the deformed hand. If you want to look back at chapter 3, verse 4, what we read there, 
is this, And Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And here, the disciples are silent. Both Pharisees and disciples are silenced before Jesus because of guilt and shame, just as both are guilty of a hardness of heart to one degree or another. Interestingly, there's not much difference right now in Jesus' ministry between his disciples and his opponents. Their preoccupation with rank and standing, however, is in character of what we know about first century Judaism. Their silence here is a confession, and yet their slowness to respond indicates possibly a budding awareness of the incompatibility of their ambitions with the way of Jesus. They are beginning to recognize the disconnect. Their wrong view of Jesus, that being a worldly king who certainly didn't have to die, and their wrong view of discipleship, or disciples, their wrong view of themselves as more or less great, are related. They have a wrong view of Jesus right now, and they have a wrong view of themselves. And yet, the disciples are in the classroom with Jesus. He continues to have to teach them. And my friends, may this be an encouragement to you all. Oh, I'm going to Sunday school I need a break from school. Oh, the the preacher's going to teach? Jesus knew the importance of teaching. Indeed, in his great commission, what does he say? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. It's one of the missions of the church to teach, not just to reach, but to teach. And Jesus now presents another lesson. It's a picture of discipleship, that being last of all and being servant of all. Jesus the teacher. And here he sits and instructs and he's assuming the posture in this day of a Jewish rabbi of an authoritative teacher. It's a formal seminar. Sit down and he calls the twelve to them. And this is highlighting that his teaching is extremely significant. And what's his main lesson on this particular occasion? His main lesson is this, he states it. True greatness consists in being last of all and being servant of all. Jesus does not repudiate prominence and greatness, but he redefines greatness. In other words, the challenge is to be great in the things that matter to God. Nothing is greater in God's eyes than giving. And no vocation affords the opportunity to give more than that of a servant. The word here for servant is diaconus. The ordinary Greek word for waiting tables that we see in Acts chapter 6. It refers to personal devotion in service as opposed to service as a slave or for hire or even service as a priest. In the Greek world of this day, service like this was demeaning and undignified. 
And the servant was only noticed when they failed. Plato, a classical Greek philosopher of the 5th and 4th century BC, said this, quote, How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Did you hear that? How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? How about you? When you are in the position of serving someone, is it a joy or rather is it a burden? So he teaches by making a direct statement. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. But he goes on to show a picture. There's a drama here and an illustration here. Because the simple profundity of this truth is better enacted than spoken. As later Jesus will demonstrate as he washes the disciples' feet. It's important to know that in Greek and Jewish society at this point, children are not sentimental. Children are thought of as not yet having arrived in society. The conclusion Jesus draws here is subtle and surprising. The child is not an example of humility. Did you hear that? Most of you with children would probably agree with that, right? Your child from the very first stages is not demonstrating innocence, is not demonstrating humility. If anything, they are grabbing and hiding and running. It's how they're hardwired. So this is not an example of humility when Jesus brings a child out before them and when he takes that child in his arms. But rather it's an example of the little and the insignificant ones who followers of Jesus are to receive. Children at this time possess neither position nor importance. They have absolutely no standing in society. Jesus is saying thus, disciples of his are to be like him in his ministry that embraces the little and the insignificant. But Jesus himself goes on to provide his own authoritative interpretation. Verse 37 is Jesus' commentary on what he's done in verse 36. Because our response to the children is our response to God. To receive children, Jesus is saying, is to receive Him. We are told to welcome children. Who are they? They are unappreciative, ungrateful, they can't do you any favors, and they lack status. Jesus is saying, in other words, in my kingdom, in how my kingdom works, the greatest is the one who seeks the most to serve. To welcome others who are the little ones so shows that you accept and you understand my work on the cross. I welcomed you, in other words, Jesus said, when you were poor and helpless. And so you, when you welcome others who are in this condition, you have welcomed me. Only people who understand the dynamic of what I did on the cross will be able to develop this upside down to the world view of greatness. In other words, we must see that Jesus became little and why he 
became little. Because we are little and weak and helpless. If we admit and accept those two things, we welcome him as our savior. And that will mean also that we will welcome the little ones around us. If you disdain the weak and helpless, Jesus is saying, in other words, in this picture, children, or if you lack the humility and service which child nurture requires, then you show you don't understand the very mission of Jesus. We're looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism in the youth and adult class, and we've already spent time a while back looking at the third question and answer, which is, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And many of us know the answer, that the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What is, what is God asking us to believe here? That Jesus came as a servant. And what to do? In every relationship, we are to be servants who give, not manipulators who get, not a trying to get greatness. And notice that the humblest act of kindness here sets off a chain reaction that goes to the very heaven itself for whatever is done to the little, to the least, to the last when done in Jesus' name, is done to Jesus. And whatever is done for Jesus is done for God the Father. It's an amazing chain reaction that takes place. So to welcome the little ones in His name means to give unlovely, weak, unappreciative people some of the honor and respect due to Christ that is why a Christian doesn't look for gratitude or payback from service. Why? Because Christians know that we're already indebted to Christ for eternity. And we are only showing Jesus our gratitude by serving others in his name. Those of you that have been around for a while, those of you that may still read the Preparing for Worship email may remember and notice that I always quote Romans 15, 5 through 7 about worshiping, glorifying God with one voice and welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. Worship and welcome Again, verse 7 of Romans 15, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You are weak and little and helpless and Jesus receives you. We are to then receive the weak and the little and the helpless because that's what Jesus has done for us. And we heard a moment ago in our New Testament reading, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. That is not what the disciples were doing when they were arguing about greatness, but this is what Jesus is teaching and is instructing his disciples. This is how you are to live. 
this call here, this call to be last of all and servant of all, is a call to humility. When following Jesus, discussions about who is the greatest are completely out of order. Those of you who like meetings and Robert's Rules, you might like to say, hey, uh, that's out of order, right? And you break out the rule book. You're right. Shouldn't be said. Strike that from the record. It's out of order. Striving to achieve for greatness while following Jesus is out of order. Augustine, one of our church fathers of the 4th and 5th centuries, in sermon number 38 from the Gospel of John, writes this, quote, Observe a tree, how it first tends downwards, that it may shoot forth upwards. It fashions its roots low in the ground, that it may send forth its top toward heaven. It is not from humility, is it not from humility that it endeavors to rise? But without humility, it will not attain to higher things. You are wanting to grow up into the air without a root. Such is not growth, but a collapse. The root of humility produces the fruit of good works that serve others. Our passage that we've just looked at is a commentary on the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, it's a commentary on the gospel. And I want us, as we conclude, to remember three things about the gospel that we see in our text. First, the paradox of the gospel. The values of the gospel, as we will continue to see, are upside down to the world. You win by losing. You live through dying. Your weakness is your strength. The greatest is not the one who is served, but rather the greatest is the one who serves. And nowhere better can this greatness be seen than in the person and work of Jesus. For, for Paul writes to the Corinthian church this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Do you know this grace? Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who made Himself nothing? So that you and I and anybody else that trust in Jesus can be made something, everything before the Father? Jesus and His grace are available to all who acknowledge their weakness, their helplessness, their poverty. So not only is there the paradox of the gospel, but the call of the gospel because it goes out to everyone everywhere. Notice, verse 35, if anyone would be first. And verse 37, whoever receives. The person who is last of all and servant of all and who receives the least receives Christ and in doing so is received by God the Father into fellowship. It is these actions that demonstrate a true understanding of all that God has done for them. 
And my friends, as we looked at this and I studied this, the worship and the welcome came together. We worship God the Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, with one heart and one voice, and we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And finally, finally, the reward of the gospel. One day, Christians, that is those people who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, will hear these words that they have longed to hear, words that first appear in the parable of the talents. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That servant, that servant will not say, I am the greatest. No, because the kingdom of God, heaven and eternity provide the definition of true greatness. The servant will not speak at that time, but instead will hear these words. Again, well done, good and faithful servant. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? The person who stoops low to serve in the name of Jesus is the greatest. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words before us, words that shake us and turn us upside down, and yet words that lead to life, life that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You that we see in Christ's welcome of us a pattern of how we are to welcome one another. Father, I pray that you would protect this church and indeed all churches from the strife that comes from arguing over greatness. And Father, if there is competition in the church, may it be people who are competing with one another to outdo one another in showing love and honor. Oh, Father, would you enable your people gathered here and elsewhere to be servants in the name of Christ with the strength that Christ alone provides. Father, we thank you for Jesus who indeed became poor so that we could be rich in the things of heaven and the things of eternal and everlasting life. For we pray in his name. Amen. Our hymn of responses. Uh...